This morning, we're going to finish chapter 18. And if y'all are as snarky as uh, the boy in the sound booth is, y'all are going to be thinking to yourself, well, that's a little ambitious, because he actually said that to me last night. Um, verses 15, and 16, uh, 15, 16, and 17, um, the, the passage that we looked at last week, um, this is a, a really, really important topic for the church. This is, this is something that, you know, Jesus has been talking about how we interact with people in the church, how we uh, forgive others, how we make sure we don't cause others to stumble, things like that. This is the culmination um, from, from verses 21 to 35. This is the, the culmination of an answer to the, the question that Peter's going to ask of how we apply all this thinking. So I'm going to ask you all to stand with me for our scripture this morning. Starting in verse 18 this morning. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, as familiar as this message is, it's a hard message for us because forgiveness is not our nature. Father, we in our flesh want vengeance. We want justice. We want revenge on those who have wronged us. But that is not the way that you command us to be. So help us to learn this morning to become more like Jesus and to apply this parable to our lives. Amen. Please have a seat. So before I hit the parable, before I get to uh, verses 21 through the end of the chapter there, um, let's take a quick look at verses 18 and 19. You might be thinking that you're suffering from deja vu when you read those verses. Because they sound really familiar. Back in November, 
I know that seems like a decade ago. Um, and you know, the older I get, the longer ago that seems too. It's, it's weird how that works out. Back in November, when we were in chapter 16, uh, in, in chapter 16, verse 19, after Jesus had said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He then says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That looks an awful lot like verse 18 here in Matthew 18. Almost word for word, if not word for word. The thought process is exactly the same as what we talked about back in November. The meaning is the same. And because Jesus' context has been on forgiving one another, that's what he's talking about. We have to expand the scope of our context to include the entirety of Matthew's gospel and the entirety of the New Testament. He's talking about forgiving one another. He's talking about how we go to a person who has sinned against us and we explain to them what happened and how it hurt us and how it bothered us. And if they repent, then we've won that brother. But then if they don't, we take one or two others with us to act as witnesses. And if they don't listen to them, then we take it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then we take them out of the fellowship. But we don't cut them off from our existence. We still minister to them and and treat them like an unbeliever, right? This is also tied to John's gospel. Now, it's not very often that there is something in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that is also relevant in John because John did his own thing with his gospel account. In uh, John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 23, at the end of Jesus' upper room um, sermon, I guess you would call it, where he's, he's having his last real good teaching session with the disciples, uh, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. He is not telling us that we have the power to dish out God's forgiveness. I don't get to decide whether God forgives a person or not. Jesus did that, right? Okay. What he's talking about is that what we do here has lasting consequences. In the context of the apostles as the foundation of the church, they had and we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. How does somebody access the kingdom of heaven? With Jesus' righteousness, right? The gospel that we carry, that we're supposed to be taking to a lost world, is the key to the kingdom. We share Jesus' love with them. We share who Jesus is with them. And if by faith they accept his sacrifice, right, then Jesus' righteousness is added to their account. They get a key in order to go to heaven. That's how salvation works. If we don't share the gospel and we don't tell people that their sins can be forgiven because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we've withheld forgiveness from them. As surely as if we were the ones doing the forgiving. In the context of how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Back to Matthew chapter 18, we've been talking about the fellowship within the family of God. If a person doesn't repent, we're to treat them as an unbeliever. What are we supposed to do with unbelievers? Share the gospel with them. Well, if we don't forgive them and we hold on to that offense that they have caused, right? We're probably not going to share the gospel with them. And we've actually allowed that offense to be a controlling influence in our lives. Worse, if we don't just let it control us, but we do what humans normally do with it, okay? So so this water bottle is an offense that somebody has committed against me. So I'm not just going to hold on to this water bottle, but I'm going to hold it close to my chest. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to coddle it. I'm going to keep it warm. I'm going to feed it. I'm going to dwell on it. I'm going to love it. I'm going to grow it until it consumes my life. And then it becomes bitterness. And then it becomes hatred. I will not share the gospel with a person that I can't stand to be in the same room with. Because I will seek every possible opportunity to stay out of that room. So what are the chances if we refuse to forgive that we can ever share the gospel with or minister to that person who desperately needs it? We won't. So in, in the, the next thing that Jesus says there, is if two or three agree to ask for something, God will do it. Right? So he says in verse 19, if two two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Well, there have been those who have said that means that as long as the church is in agreement over praying for something, then God will do it. Number one, prayer doesn't work that way. <laughs> if, if you ever think that your prayers are going to obligate God to do something, you are sadly mistaken. Back to the context of what Jesus has been talking about. In verse 17, he said, If he refuses to listen to the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. Right? the local church, the gathering of believers that the two are probably a part of, the church that takes this offense to the one who caused it and says, okay, look, you sinned against this person over here and they went and talked to you and you refused to repent. So then they took these two people that were aware of the circumstances to be witnesses for you and you refused to repent. Now we as the church are coming to you, pleading with you one more time to repent. Will you do it? That church is probably very likely going to pray for the person to repent. Yes? Okay. When we pray as believers, we ought to be praying God's will. Yes? As we grow more Christ-like, our prayers should become more 
God's will like, right? So if we are a gathering of believers and we're praying together for a person to come to repentance, then that's probably God's will, right? Okay. If we agree together to pray for a person's change of heart and repentance, for their reconciliation to Christ, their reconciliation to the body, and we ourselves are gathered in the name and the power and the authority and the mission of Christ, which is to do God's will, then why would God say no? But there's a lot of ifs in that statement. If we agree together, well, that means that the person who was offended has to let go of the offense. We have to forgive. That means that the witnesses who were aware of it and got dragged into it because the guy wouldn't repent have to forgive. That means the church that is now tied up in this mess has to forgive. So, and that's just agreeing to forgive. We also have to be in agreement to pray for a person's change of heart. I might not want to pray for their change of heart. You know, there's a, a group of psalms in, in, in the book of Psalms that are called imprecatory psalms, where David and the other psalm writers were praying for their enemies. And they weren't praying for a change of heart. They were praying, God, get them. We can't have somebody in the congregation who's praying, you know what, I don't want his change of heart. I want him to suffer like I did. We have to be gathered in the mission of Christ to do God's will. Well, if we're going to do God's will, then whose will are we not going to do? Ding! Our own! How easy is that to set aside? I'll let you know when I've managed it. Right? Paul says we have to repeatedly set that aside. Jesus said, take up your cross, put yourselves to death and follow me. Daily. <laughs> That's easy, right? Sometimes minute by minute by minute. We have to be careful that our motives are for the person's best interests, not for our own sense of justice or revenge. We need to be sure that we are gathered for the sake of Jesus and not just gathered for the sake of Olivet Baptist Church. There's a lot of ifs in there. Now, there are people who would stop that passage right there and say, okay, now Jesus moves on to a different topic. I don't think so. Because he's been talking about forgiving people. And Peter asked the question that comes right directly out of this teaching. Okay, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive the guy who sins against me? How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Now, I imagine that probably got a little bit awkward with Andrew sitting right there because he's Peter's brother. What did I do? Right? How many times do I have to forgive my brother, Peter got it. 
Peter understands this is about forgiveness. We are expected to be people who forgive those who sin against us. As people who are growing in Christ-likeness, then we should be acting more Christ-like. Jesus forgave the Romans as they were putting the nails in his wrists. Okay? I have a hard time forgiving the guy who cut me off at Pass Road in Beauvoir by the time I get to work on Keesler Air Force Base four miles away. Jesus forgave them while they were putting the nails in his arm. We've got a ways to go. Peter got it. Peter says, How many times will my brother sin and I forgive him? As many as seven? Now, don't get all sanctimonious on Peter. Okay? Can I stop forgiving somebody after they sin against me seven times? Right? At least Peter's asking. Most of us don't manage to forgive somebody once. And if they do it a second time, forget it. Right? So when Peter says seven times, you you may not be aware of this, you may be aware of this. Seven is like the number of completion or perfection. Right? So Peter is probably actually being very pious at this point. He says, is my forgiveness complete if I forgive them seven times? Have I done what God has expected of me? It's a good thing we would never ask for a limit on our own piety like that, right? How many minutes a day should I read my Bible? Anybody ever ask you that question? You ever give them an answer? It's something we do for young believers in Christ, right? You should probably be reading your Bible at least 30 minutes a day. That goes from at least 30 minutes a day to, hang on a second, I need to read my Bible for 30 minutes. So I'm going to set a timer here for 30 minutes. As soon as that timer goes off, all done. I checked the box. I did my thing for Jesus today. We never do that. What time of day should a person pray? All day long. A good answer. You know, I've had people say that, you know, if if you only get a couple of opportunities during the day to pray, you really need to pray first thing in the morning. It should be the first thing you do before you get out of bed. I get out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning. My eyes ain't open. And I have to be at work at 6. I've had preachers tell me, well, then you need to get up earlier. You need to live my life for a day. Jesus doesn't say that we should pray first thing in the morning. Jesus doesn't tell us how many minutes we should read the Bible a day. Scripture doesn't even tell us that we should read the Bible every day. It's kind of one of those inferred things that if we're going to grow in Christ's likeness, we need to be familiar with His Word. How many times should we pray? Pray always. That covers it, right? The more you drive up and down Pass Road and I-10, the easier it is. 
Do I have to tithe on my gross pay or can I tithe with my net? I've heard that question before, right? And normally when when people say that, do I have to tithe on my gross pay or can I get away with tithing on my net pay? You catch those two words there? Have to and get away with. That's how we approach our holiness. So before we get all sanctimonious on Peter, at least he's asking the question, how many times is enough? We are Peter. We don't want to forgive people. Jesus has made it clear that we have to forgive people. We want to know how many times before we get off the hook. Jesus, Jesus could have said, and it, and I'd like, I, I really think if Jesus were sitting here talking to us about this right now, right? Peter asked the question, so how many times does my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? Seven times? Jesus could have answered like this. Peter, I'd be happy if it was once. But he didn't. Because Peter's thinking was wrong. He gave Peter a math problem. 70 times 7. Some translations, like the one I read this morning, say 77 times. It's a matter of how numbers are rendered in the Greek. Either way, it's a number that's big enough to mean how many times the answer is yes. Do you love it when you get an answer like that? How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Yes. Okay, then. The answer is, we are supposed to forgive people, period. It doesn't matter if they commit the same sin against us a million times. The Christian is required to forgive. Now, so that Jesus could explain this to the disciples, he tells them a parable. I love this parable. This parable shows that Jesus likes to use the literary device of exaggeration. All right. The king wanted to settle accounts with the people who owed money to him. I'm going to kind of to 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 I don't know summarize this a little bit. He calls in this servant who owes him ten thousand talents. Here's where the exaggeration comes in. A talent was the highest value currency available in Judea. It was the equivalent, roughly, to six thousand denarii. Okay, that helps, right? A single denarius was a day's wage for the common worker. So I I went out and I did a little bit of research. I pulled up the 2015 census for the United States. Okay? The median household income in the United States was $56,500 in 2015. Okay. Divide that into 26 two-week pay periods. That comes out to about $2,100 for every 80 hours. That's about $26 an hour gross pay. $210 a day. That's one denarius. Multiply that by 6,000 to get the value of a talent. That's $1.26 million. 
and this guy owed 10,000 talents. This, I'd like to know what this servant was borrowing for. Okay, I thought my credit card debt was bad. He owed the king $12.6 billion. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of money. And the king says, pay. Right? There was no way in this. Now, this is a parable. This didn't really happen. This is a story that Jesus told to get us to understand something. There is no way possible this servant could have paid back that size of a debt. This was a huge debt. So the king declared that the servant was going to to, to go into bankruptcy, right? Servant didn't get to file for it. The king said, I'm selling everything that you own. I'm selling you, I'm selling your wife, and I'm selling your kids to pay off this debt. You don't even own yourselves anymore. The servant falls to his knees and he begs for mercy. And the king, out of pity, released him and didn't say, just pay it off as fast as you can. He forgave the debt. Now imagine the king's accountant was losing his mind, right? What do you mean you forgave the debt? He owed us $12 billion. You just write it off? What are you, the United States government? This servant and his debt represent the sin debt that we each carry. Our sin debt is so big that there is no possible way we could pay it off. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. But by God's mercy, our debt has been forgiven. But there's more to the story. That servant, we're going to call him the wicked servant, who just had... $12.6 billion worth of debt forgiven, his accounts cleared with the king, is wandering down the road and he sees a servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now that's not a small debt. If you remember the numbers, that still comes out to $21,000. That's still a significant debt. He grabs the fellow and starts to choke him. I I can see him with this guy up against the wall, holding him by the collar, banging his head. I want you to pay what you owe me. And the other servant fell and he begged for mercy, just like the first one did. Even to the point of promising to pay the debt off. But instead of accepting the offer... Instead of forgiving the debt like the king had just done for him, the wicked servant orders him to be sent to prison. Now, was that legal? Yes, he was perfectly within his rights to do that. Was it ethical? No, especially in light of 
the king's forgiveness. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to recognize here. The size of that debt that the second servant owned, owed the first servant, the size of the debt, $21,000, that shows us that when somebody else sins against us, it really hurts. It's not insignificant. I've heard people say when they're talking about this parable that basically the, the first servant owed the size of the national debt and the second servant owed the, owed the equivalent of lunch money. No. 21 grand. That's half of a yearly income. That's significant. When somebody sins against me, it hurts. It hurts badly. It's real. It's not just something that I can write off. Now, if you're the kind of person who can write off a $21,000 debt, then maybe that doesn't apply to you. I'm not that guy. And just like the wicked servant, we might want to exact payment for what that person has done. Now, let me ask you this question. Is that justice? Yeah, it is justice. Just like it was legal for the wicked servant to have his fellow servant put into jail because he couldn't pay the debt off, it is justice for me to demand recompense from somebody who has offended me or hurt me. That is justice. Of course, we're not happy with justice, right? I'm not a justice kind of person. I'm a revenge kind of person. That's why God, you know, told the Israelites when they moved into the promised land that if your brother punches you and he knocks out an eyeball, then you get to punch him and knock out an eyeball. If he knocks out a tooth, then you get to knock out a tooth. That's a limitation. That's because if he punches me and he knocks out a tooth... I'm going to make it so his jaw's wired shut. If he knocks out an eyeball, I'm probably going to kill him. That's not justice, that's revenge. See, our goal is rarely ever justice. Our goal is normally vengeance. So what the wicked servant did was justice. And if somebody offends me, and I go to them and I say, you owe me an apology... You owe me compensation because you did something that offended me. That's justice. But look at what happens to the wicked servant when word gets back to the king what he did. The king hears about it and he went living. He just, he lost his mind. He demanded the wicked servant to be brought before him. And he got all up in his face. How dare you demand justice from your fellow servant after I forgave you that debt? How dare you make my mercy pointless by not extending it to other people? And so he delivered the wicked servant 
to jail until the debt would be paid off. $12.6 billion worth of debt. That's an awful lot of license plates and furniture that gets sold to government installations. How important is this to the Christian life? Look at verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Be cautious with that. Jesus is talking to the disciples. That includes Judas, one who was never saved, one who never knew the forgiveness of Jesus, one whose heart was not changed. A person who is unforgiving of others does not demonstrate that they've ever received the forgiveness for their own sin. Now, I can be unforgiving from time to time. I have never, ever, 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 ever made any bones about not being able to forgive people who do stupid things, especially when I'm driving the car. But because I have been forgiven, because I do have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, and because God knows that I don't always listen to that little prick of the conscience when I do something stupid, the the Holy Spirit keeps a length of two by four in the back seat of the car. And when I start acting like that, I generally feel it about a mile down the road. And so I have to work to forgive people. One of the kids offends me. When Steph does something that offends me, one of my coworkers does something that offends me. God always has this discussion with me. Always. I've never once not had him call me to account for an attitude of unforgiveness. And so I forgive. But a person who refuses to forgive has probably never understood the depth of the debt that they owe for violating God's law. Which means they're probably not part of the kingdom in the first place. And so if you don't forgive from the heart, then I expect it would be a very natural thing for God to do to sentence you to punishment until your debt can be paid off. By the way, God's prison doesn't include license plates or furniture. When we deal with people, we're going to get hurt. Every relationship 
whether it's a friendship, whether it's a family relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, doesn't matter. Every relationship comes with hurt. Why? Because we're people. We're all sinful. We're all selfish. We're all arrogant. We're all proud. And so we all hurt one another. We have to be a people who show forgiveness. If you understand how much God has forgiven you for, then you ought to be quick to forgive your fellow believer when they sin against you. Let's all stand. I tried really hard this morning when I typed up my outline, my notes for this morning. I have a a general word count. I can tell you roughly how long a sermon is going to be by how many words I use in my manuscript, right? And my normal normal time to get us done at about noon is about 1,200, 1,300 words. My manuscript today had 1,500 words in it. I tried hard to keep you here, guys. And it's quarter till. (laughs) That's because this message is one that is so important and yet so easy for us to hear. It's hard to put into practice.